Hebrews 2020, the year of the great king is 2021. And we still hope to see with 2020 vision through this Hebrews 2020 series, we see Jesus. This is increment 97, sabbatismos, or sabbatismos is our word. And we'll begin with prayer. Father, please grant us the gift of humility, for only the humble hear and are glad. Grant us the gift of meekness, for the meek you will teach. And we thank you for this privilege and for your kindness through Christ Jesus, which begins now and only culminates in the ages to come. Grant us hope. Grant us that we function in faith and most of all, Grant that the love of God is poured out in our hearts through the words that we receive today and through the Holy Spirit that you've given to us in your grace. Amen. We're concerned with Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. We have recently considered 11 words for the upcoming universal restoration, reconciliation, recapitulation, regeneration, rectification, whatever you choose to call it. All of these words come under the general term called instauration, which is the universal impact of the cross of Christ. And we are going to discover today a twelfth term and reiterate the first words that we've already looked at, the group of words, a cluster of words which I am going to repeat because I am very strongly impressed in my soul, in my spirit, you might say, of their importance and in giving us an objective basis for hope so that our hope isn't just a nebulous thing or a kind of vague expectation but rather an anticipation rooted in documentation from the scriptures. So we're going to begin by once again reading the section of scripture that we're involved with right now and that we're scrutinizing by the help of the Spirit. Hebrews 4, 11, 1 to 11. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, let us be intensely concerned lest any one of you think he has come too late to enter it. Just because you weren't of the Exodus generation doesn't mean you can't enter this rest because it's not a literal land. It's a metaphorical, spiritual rest, not unlike the kingdom of God. For verse 2, the king, for the good news, the gospel we would call it, has also been proclaimed to us as it was to them. But they didn't profit from the message they heard, not uniting with those who heard it by faith. For we who are believing are entering into rest. Just as he who said, as I swore in my wrath, if they will enter into my rest. We've discovered that this is, among other things, an idiom of speech, a Hebraism, as it's called, for they will not enter my rest, meaning that God blocks rest. He puts a wall up so that people can't enter into the land if they have no credentials of faith, and rather have unbelief. They will not enter my rest, of course, comes from Psalm 95.11, which is the Septuagint, Psalm 94.11, which we've been dealing with all the way since 3.7 of Hebrews. 
And yet his works have been in existence since the founding of the universe. For somewhere, he speaks about the seventh day in this way. The somewhere is Genesis 2.2. And God rested from all his works on the seventh day. So we're combining here the rest, katapausis, with the seventh day. Another catch phrase found from Genesis 2.2. And again, in our present text, this isn't me talking, but the PT, he said, and again, in our present text, that's Psalm 94.11, if they enter into my rest, again, he keeps repeating this, tain katapasin mu, my rest, God's rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter into it, and those who were formerly evangelized did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day. Today. The PT is ingeniously, by the power and genius of the Holy Spirit only, showing his audience or his readers that today, for them, they can still enter into rest. They don't have to be of that Exodus generation. And we say today, we also can enter into this rest because the rest is not a matter of a land and a place as much as it is a matter of an entry into God's own rest and a participation in God and in his son Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. So today, saying in David, we continue here in verse 6, that's the prophet in whom God spoke and wrote Psalm 94 in the Septuagint, not Psalm 95 in your English translations. Today, after such a long time, just as it was said before, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. True for them in Moses' day, true for the people of God in David's day, true for the people of God in this PT's day during the writing of Hebrews just before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, true for us today on the verge of other historical crises and in the midst of them, really. For if Joshua, verse 8, Jesus, had caused them to rest, God wouldn't have been speaking in David of another later day. Consequently, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath observance, and that's the word, S-A-B-B-A-T-I-S-M-O-S, a hapax legomena, only used once in all of the scriptures, though sabaton, S-A-B-B-A-T-O-N, which we translate as Sabbath, is found passim throughout the scriptures, everywhere, all, all through the scriptures. Passim simply means all through the scriptures. This word only once, S-A-B-B-A-T-I-S-M-O-S. There remains... A Sabbath, and we could translate it a Sabbath observance for the people of God. For the one who enters into rest, that means observes God's Sabbath, ceases from his own works or from her own works as God did from his. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter into that rest. This is the emphatic 
statement of this whole thing in exhortation. Let us make every effort to enter into that rest so that we don't fall into the same pattern of disobedience slash disbelief. That is, those who didn't enter the rest didn't enter because of unbelief, which equals disobedience in God's eyes. And that's what he's speaking about when he talks about the majority of the Exodus generation who died short of the rest, short of the land, short of their inheritance. So reiterating, and this is very important, and I hope that you'll get these terms down. And they are in print. They'll be in print in more than one place in the notes. We are accumulating insights to the end that we can demonstrate that the rest, katapausis, or God's rest, being spoken of here, is also synonymous with several other words. Katapausis, K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-S, is also synonymous with perichoresis, which is the mutual indwelling of God and the universal creation. That's found in 1 Corinthians 15.24. Perichoresis also is like or synonymous with apocatastasis, the the universal restoration found in Acts 321, which is also like anapsukios, A-N-A-P-S-U-X, anapsuksios, the time of refreshment spoken of in Acts 319 and 20, which is similar to anakephaliosis, which we dealt with in the Doctrine of the Mystery in 2019, kephaliosis, Anakephaliosis, and that's found in Ephesians 1.10. That's the summary, a recapitulation of all things in Jesus Christ. And then there is palingenesia, the again genesis or the new genesis spoken of by Jesus, who universalized the concept of regeneration in Matthew 19.28. And that's also synonymous with kinekatesis, K-A-I-N-E, K-T-I-S-I-S, which is the new creation, Isaiah 65, 17, 66, 22, Galatians 6, 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Revelation 21, 5, where it's universalized. The universal restoration is the universal creation of everything new. The original creation is eternalized in the new creation, and sin, of course, is ruled out, the Adamic ontology, ruled out, canceled, death, canceled, anything negative is canceled. The negative is negated in life. So kinekatesis is followed by a likeness to apolutrosis, which is redemption, which also is eternalized or universalized in passages like Romans 8.23, apolutrosis. Christ himself is our apolutrosis, our redemption. Colossians, make that 1 Corinthians 1.20. And of course, apolutrosis, redemption of all things, is also found in Romans 3.24 and Ephesians 4.30, where it calls it a day of redemption. 
Lutrosis, L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S, is also the abbreviated form, the abbreviated form found in Hebrews 13.12, where Jesus obtained eternal redemption for us through his blood. This is also like or synonymous with deorthosis, D-I-O-R-T-H-O-S-I-S, in Hebrews 9.10, as we've seen, which is called the correction or the rectification, and it's universal. It's connected with a tabernacle, which is not of this created world. And so it's connected with the cross of Christ and its otherworldly impact in Hebrews 9.11. And perhaps also, as I said, most significantly is apokatalaxi, which is also connected with the phrase tapanta of everything, universal reconciliation, and that's found, the reconciliation of all things, that's found in Colossians 1.20, and it has specifically to do with the peace that God made through the blood of Christ's cross to Staru. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten words, and these are all balanced with the word instauration. Instauration kind of is an all-encompassing word because it involves the universal impact of the cross of Christ. We have now a twelfth word that we're going to consider, and it's jubilee. Jubilee, and I have a, a special personal connection with Jubilee that I hope that you won't find off-putting, but I think I need to express it today. And so the word sabbatismos is also connected to what we call Jubilee. Now, in Leviticus 25.13, we have the primary reference, I think, to the Jubilee. It's described as the year of release, of pardon, forgiveness, cancellation of obligation. I think Jesus was referring to this when he said, forgive us our debts. He was saying, bring on the Jubilee as we forgive those who are indebted to us. The forgiveness of debts or the cancellation of obligations comes with jubilee, and jubilee is related to all these other words, the universal coming of, well, we could also call it the coming of the kingdom of God. So there's concept after concept after concept. It's almost futile to just try to enumerate them. But we have this jubilee, incidentally, was signaled by shouting. And so we have in Psalm 100 and verse 1, which is the Septuagint of 99.1, shout triumphantly, shout for joy. It was also signaled by a blast of trumpets. The signal was called semesia in Leviticus 25.13. S long E-M-A-S-I-A, you'll see it in print again. And the year that it signals it is traditionally called the year of Jubilee. Jesus was referring to this when he talked about the acceptable year in his prophecy in Luke 4.18 and following where he was citing for himself and identifying himself as Messiah 
from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And so this, there's a lot to unfurl, we could say, of this jubilee. It's traditionally called the year of jubilee. This grand jubilee is also called, and I'm, I'm going to refer to a couple of articles. One is from the Fawcett Bible Dictionary, F-A-U-S-S-E-T. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is a famous uh, lexicon, and Fawcett wrote a Bible dictionary, I think around 1880. It's found on my BibleWorks 7 software, and an article was written by a man named Ewald, E-W-A-L-D. I don't have his first name. Ewald wrote an article in the Fawcett Bible Dictionary. We're referring to that. We'll also refer to the Easton Bible Dictionary, which is public domain, but also on my Bible Work 7 software. So the Grand Jubilee is called the crowning of the sabbatical system. That's a good description for it, especially in the light of our Corona series and the crown and the year of the great king, etc. The Grand Jubilee. It's called the crowning of the sabbatical system. In this article by Ewald in Fawcett Bible Dictionary, he associates this Grand Jubilee with the time of the restitution, he calls it. I don't think that's the best word for it. Times of the restitution of all things. In other words... He says that the Jubilee speaks of, ultimately, the universal restoration. He says that in his article in Acts 3.21, referring to it from Acts 3.21. And it's, he also said that also associates itself with the regeneration. So he associates the Jubilee right off the bat in a very tiny article, in a brief article, he associates the Jubilee with... The apocatastasis, which we have here in our notes, the apocatastasis, and he also associates it with the palingenesia. So the Jubilee already has a connection to the ultimate fulfillment of the rejoicing of the Jubilee in the universal restoration, which is an eschatological rest which is an eschatological celebration, as we know from Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. There's a lot to this, obviously. So the Grand Jubilee is called the crowning of the sabbatical system, and it's associated with the times of the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21, and the regeneration, the universal regeneration in Matthew 19.28, and it is ushered in, and he makes a point of this, by the blast of a trumpet or the blast of trumpets. And he refers to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. Unfortunately, that passage has been misread and misused by rapturists, pre-tribulational rapturists. They've used it wrongly. They, make, they picture Jesus as coming down to the point of the sky, catching up and out of this world Christians and then pounding the earth with the events of the Great Tribulation. That's a wrong interpretation of it, straight out wrong. The coming of Jesus Christ is really likened to the coming of the great king, the king that comes to visit a place or a place under his domain, comes out 
to the outside of the city where his people go out to meet him and come back into the city with him. So the so-called rapture, uh, where people are taken up and away, is more of a platonic-type doctrine. It's more of a Gnostic kind of a feel to it. So the latter passage that he re- uses in 1 Thessalonians 4:16 to 17, and he uses it correctly, that trump being the trumpet of God, the blast of God that signals the year of Jubilee, which is really referring to the ultimate restoration of all things. And again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17 has been hijacked by those who propose a pre-tribulation rapture, they call it, of Christians to heaven. The trumpet of God in reality signals the restoration of all things at the parousia, which is the appearance of Jesus Christ, the arrival of Jesus Christ, not to snatch some people away, but to stay, at which time the dead will first be resurrected and those who are alive and remain will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So they'll be kind of like the procession that meets the Lord and then comes back with him to the earth, doesn't go away to heaven. And incidentally, the tribulation Jesus spoke of already happened between 66 and 73 AD. So you're a false prophet if you're talking about a secret rapture and a tribulation to follow on the earth. So, and I've been there before. I know where that is. I've been in that crowd and I've been teaching. I taught that way. I taught that way and wrote a book on it called The Case for Comfort. It sure is a case for comfort, but not like I thought back then. The trumpet of God, in reality, signals the restoration of all things at the parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, which is the appearance of Jesus Christ or the arrival of Jesus Christ, at which time all the dead will be resurrected and those who are alive and remain will be caught up in clouds. That's when they will be transconfigured into glorious bodies, as Philippians 3.21 says. They meet the Lord in the air, and they are ever with the Lord. They're always with the Lord in as much as they have now the bodies of glory like he, like he has. So they are with him. They come back to the earth, for God is making a new heavens and a new earth. God isn't into saving us from this body. He's into transconfiguring the body. God isn't into saving us from this earth. He's into transconfiguring the earth to make a new heavens and a new earth. This is the worldview that the scripture provides for us. And so we are ever with the Lord in the air. That's where it happens in the air, but we're not always in the air with the Lord. We come back to earth with him. And we are always with the Lord as the sons and daughters of the bodily resurrection. You don't have to die to be resurrected in that sense, because when he comes and there are alive and remain, a generation alive and remaining will be transconfigured. There will be the same effect as bodily resurrection from the dead, only it will transform our mortal bodies rather than our bodies that have corrupted and decayed in graves or in urns or whatever other form they take. The sons and daughters of the resurrection are not caught up in a way to heaven. 
They're caught up in clouds. That's in cloud formations. For the Son of Man comes with clouds. To meet the Lord in the air in order to come back with him to the earth, which will have been reconciled to the heavens and made together a new heaven and a new earth. God does not intend to rescue his people from the earth. He intends to transconfigure. That's my own word, incidentally. I know there's transfiguration and there's configuration. I've blended them to transconfiguration because that's what's going to happen to our bodies. We're all going to be trans. We're going to be transconfigured. The elemental structure of our bodies will become indestructible, imperishable, made for life and livingness and participation with God through the Holy Spirit. They're called spiritual bodies in 1 Corinthians 15, 44. They're called bodies of glory in Philippians 3, 21. They are substantial, and they are real. They are eternal. They're part of a new eternal creation. So God does not, as the platonic type believers like to think, into saving us from our body, but transfiguring our body, transconfiguring the earth along with the heavens to be a new heavens and a new earth where his saving act and his saved people are forever at home. The event of Tetelestai, his finished work accomplished at the cross, will be at home forever in this new creation because this new creation is the universal impact of the cross of Christ. The impact is transfigurative, it's transconfigurative, it's transformative, it's glorious, it's all the wonderful adjectives that, well, they defy description. And so, the Jubilee has a distinctive significance to me, and I hope you won't be put off by my personal relationship to this date for reasons that I'm going to explain. The Jubilee has a distinctive significance to me because on January 23rd of this year, 2021, I quietly observed the 49th anniversary of the moment when the eternal King, our Lord Jesus, broke into my life in 1972. He did so in a remarkably saving and life-altering way. I have marked that day and that moment ever since, having much more significance to me than even a birthday. The last, day, the last year was the 49th year of this particular event in my life. And I know you have events in your life that have to do with our Lord Jesus that are similarly important to you. So I'm not trying to sing single myself out here, but the last year was the 49th year and the beginning and beginning on the 23rd, January 23rd of this year, the 50th year began for me that will culminate in a 50th anniversary in 2022. Now, the reason this is significant is because it's God chose in my case the 49th and the 50th year, which is a kind of a jubilee celebration, to not have services in our church. And so this also connects me to our church. And listen carefully to what the Fawcett Bible Dictionary says about the jubilee. It was in the 50th year, so that the 49th also being a Sabbath year, 
two sabbatical years came together just as Pentecost came in the 50th Jubilee at the end of the seven weeks or 49 days, closing with the Sabbath. It stood between the two series of sabbatical years in the century. Now, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And that's really the redemption of the whole universe. On that day, the Spirit of Grace, in that, and I'm speaking here of near as I can figure, I know it was a Sunday, I think it was January 23rd, 1972, near as I can figure. So much happened during that time that I kind of lost track of time itself and was a little bit shattered for a little while until the king put me back together again. On that day, the Spirit of Grace sealed me and has been present with me always now. I say that the Jubilee is of special significance to me because, again, in the article by Ewald, E-W-A-L-D, it shows in Fawcett, here's a quote from an article in Fawcett's Bible Dictionary under the term the Sabbath, or under the term Jubilee, rather. Quote, quote, no religious observances were prescribed Simply the trumpets sounded the glad note of restoration. The leisure of the jubilee year was perhaps devoted to school and instruction of the people. The reading of the law and such services. Sounds a little bit like, well, I could say my jubilee no services, no religious services, no gatherings together, but instruction, we received instruction. This has been the experience, and again, if I may be a little bit parochial here, and I don't want to only be speaking to Tetelestai Church or to Tetelestai Church because everyone's welcome to listen to these messages, benefit from them, do whatever. But this has been the experience of Tetelestai Church almost through the 49th year, and into the 50th, that is, I'm marking out from my own time of the Lord invading my life. If he was a fisherman, he speared me on that day. And I wiggled around and fought for quite a while, but he is starting to reel me in a little bit or drag me in. So, God came into my life at that time, and I've been a pastor of Tetelestai Church and I, I consider that an immense privilege for these past 42 years. And it's just, to me, a very significant thing. Now, I say this not because my personal testimony has any universal significance, or maybe it does. And if it does, so does yours. And so does every individual's. It's part of a universal restoration of God. Nevertheless, it does have significance, as does every individual's testimony of Jesus and every individual's spiritual history with the true and the living God. And we all have one, even though we may not even be able to detect it as we look back. In the 49th and 50th year for me, there has been this jubilee in that there have been no services or gatherings per se for our church but there has been instruction as well as much effectual prayer and fellowship of the heart and the spirit. 
And so let me say this. Let me say that to say this. There has been a purpose for our physical separation that goes far beyond a mandate of human government and far beyond the effect of what a virus could bring. So let's look at it one more time in Hebrews 4.9. We add jubilee to this whole mass of words. And I almost don't want to number them because there's others. In fact, the kingdom of God coming, let your kingdom come, is also one of these. The kingdom of God coming, the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. There's many, many more words that you could discover that have to do with this rest into which we enter. And so I want again kind of nail down the whole idea of the rest and the sabbatismos as opposed to just a Sabbath day, which we do not keep ritually. But sabbatismos means much more than that, and it has to do with entering into rest. Consequently, verse 9 again, let's reiterate Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath observance. And there we have it, sabbatismos, for the people of God, for the people of God, for the one who enters into rest, and that means here observes God's Sabbath, of course, ceases from his works as God did from his. Therefore, here's the exhortation, let us make every effort to enter into that rest. Let's work very hard at stopping working in the spiritual sense so that we don't fall into the same pattern of disobedience and disbelief or disobedience that is disbelief. Now, who are the people of God? Well, they are those who receive mercy. Peter, who has a great affinity with this Hebrews homily, says in 1 Peter 2.11, once you were not a people at all. You weren't even an identifiable, inclusive people group. You were scattered across the world. You had various ethnicities and various so-called races. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. And what made us the people of God. One thing, mercy. Once he goes on to say, once we have re not, not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. What makes the people of God is mercy. Now here's another question. Who will eventually receive the mercy of God? And the answer is, Everybody, everybody will receive the mercy of God. Because Romans 11.32 says he's imprisoned the whole human race in unbelief and disobedience. That he may have mercy on all. 
We're talking about a universal redemption, a universal new creation, a universal creation that is only completed by acts of redemption. That's why Jesus kept working on the Sabbath day. It's not because the creation wasn't finished. It's because redemption wasn't finished. He enacted redemptive works, which were also creative, on the Sabbath. And they wanted to kill him because of it in John 5.18. You think there's a cancellation culture now? The pattern of disbelief is counterbalanced, thank God, by the pattern of faith. All through Hebrews 11, really all through Hebrews itself, And it's the living and operative word of God in Hebrews 4.12. You see where this is going? It's the living and operative word of God in 4.12 that distinguishes the two, unbelief and disobedience, from belief or faith and obedience. And it judges where each and every one of us is right now. You wouldn't be busy for one second canceling other people and criticizing other people if you were under the ministry of the word of God, which is constantly judging your thoughts and your intents. You'd be constantly judging yourself. You'd be constantly seeing where you are in your thoughts and in your intents. Is your thought the thought of a finished work of Christ and faith? Is your intent to love one another or to put yourself forward over others? If you're busy with that, that's a full-time job. You wouldn't have time to get on social media and cancel other people, troll other people, dox other people, judge other people, wish other people's harm call for their deprogramming because they don't think exactly like you. Our problem is arrogance. The solution is a humility that listens to the word of God and doesn't harden the heart against it. We are offered the astounding privilege of entering into the eschatological rest of God himself, which is also his protological rest. We have the astonishing privilege of observing or celebrating the endless Sabbath within the course of this epoch, our own time. And even before the end of this evil age, we can enter in. Not fully, not completely, but in some meaningful measure and to some meaningful degree. A substantial degree. We may enter his gates with thanksgiving, says the scripture, and into his inner courts with praise. That again is Psalm 100, this time verse 4, or the Septuagint 99.4. We can, spiritually speaking, wear the garments of the priests of Ezekiel 44.18. 
Garments that don't cause sweat because we're not working for our salvation or working for God's approval. And because we've shed the garments of the old creation and the old man, the old humanity, the old Adamic ontology, we've entered a worshipful service in Hebrews 12.28 that is appropriate to a celebration of the eschatological Sabbath, the universal jubilee, When all the earth, listen carefully, when all the earth shouts triumphantly to the Lord. Psalm 100 and verse 1, also Septuagint 99.1. So, reading Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, H-E-S-C-H-E-L, in his masterwork called God in Search of Man, A Philosophy of Judaism, and in combination with Jürgen Moltmann in his book, The Coming of God. Sections of this book conflated in a way that just totally astonished me recently. Heschel asks simply, what is Sabbath? And he also distinguishes, in a way without using these words, sabbatismas from sabaton in his book. And we'll maybe hit this down the road. But for now, he asks, what is the Sabbath? And he answers, the presence of eternity, a moment of majesty, the radiance of joy. What a definition for the Sabbath. And again, he answers the question, what is the Sabbath? It's like our word quidsit. What is it? He answers, it is eternity within time. He also answered, It is the reminder of every man's royalty. And we would say, of course, every person's royalty. Every person's royalty because we have a king of kings. The great king. And what does Herr Moltmann say? The verdict on creation, he says is that it was very good. The verdict on creation that it was very good, we know this from Genesis 1.31, of course, does not mean that it was in the Greek sense perfect and without any future. The Hebrew means that it was fitting, appropriate, corresponding to the Creator's will. The accounts of creation in the beginning, he goes on to say, do not as yet talk about a creation in the glory of God. That's where he talks about the conflation of the Shekinah glory of God with the Sabbath rest of God. 
And then he goes on to say, only the Sabbath of creation is more than very good. Think of that. More than very good. It is hallowed. H-A-L-L-O-W-E-D. Sanctified. And therefore points to creation's future glory. The Sabbath is, as it were, the promise of future consummation built into the initial creation. Couldn't have said it better. So we thank you, Father, that once again we've received grace from your throne of grace. This is helpful to us because we need to find your mercy in these times. Many of us, in fact, perhaps all of us, need to find help, need to find grace to help for this situation right now. Timely grace to help. And may these words and may this message today delivered in the power of the Holy Spirit be truly a help, a timely help. May it be the lifter of our heads and the elevating grace that we need at this particular time, in this particular situation in life. I thank you, Father, that you have granted us a kind of jubilee in this 49 and 50th year, as it were, as it were. And I thank you, Father, for a congregation of believers who have been faithful for these many years and whom I always thank you for with every remembrance of them. I ask your blessing upon them. I ask your blessing upon all the hearers of this message today even upon those who disagree, those who may not see value in it. May you show them the value of your son, the value of his once and for all and forever self-sacrifice for sins, the value of having a hope that's defined and documented in the scriptures. We thank you for this, Father, and we commit ourselves and entrust ourselves to you for the continuation of this jubilee because it's a continuation of our participation in Jesus Christ, your son, and in the faithfulness of him who loved us and gave himself for us. May we not frustrate your grace, Father, but may we receive it to the degree that we enter into your rest. Amen.